This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. On this week's No Restraint Podcast, we're going to go in a few familiar directions and then maybe uh, take a left turn somewhere and do something a little bit different. And of course, thanks to the free press, and they're a year old now, Barry Weiss and Nellie Bowes and all of the people who write for the free press, and they have done an outstanding job. If you're not a subscriber, you should be. And if you're not, well, you'll get to hear lots of the great investigative journalism that goes on there and commentary that goes on there through my podcast. I'm proud to be able to bring many of these ideas to you. Well, after October 7th, I know that you were just as shocked that I was with what we saw and heard happening on America's campuses, and not just any old campus, but the campuses of elite universities, you know, the ones we'd always been taught the brightest and best were the students there. Americans, although we kind of knew how intolerant the left was, we had no idea how they were so non meritocratic. In other words, they don't care what you've done or how much you may have put out so that you could achieve something great. No, no. Everybody's just supposed to get whatever they want or need because they breathe and they exist. But immediately after October 7th, and even before the IDF started its moves into Gaza, the sheer delight that we saw not only saw but heard of students on the news of the mass murdering of Israeli victims seemed more like watching a 1930s Germany reel than contemporary America. Indeed, not a day goes by when a university professor or a student group has not spouted some anti-Semitic hatred. Thank you, Victor Davis Hanson, for pointing a lot of this out. Often, they actually threaten and attack Jewish students, or they engage in mass demonstrations calling for the extinction of Israel and then pretending that's not what they're doing. Why and how did these enlightened universities become incubators of such primordial hatred? And after the George Floyd riots in 2020, Repertory admissions, which is the effort to admit diverse students beyond their numbers in the general population, only got worse. Elite universities like Stanford and Yale boasted that their so-called white incoming student numbers had plunged to between 20 and 40 percent, despite whites making up about 70 percent of the general population. The abolition of the SAT requirement and often the comparative ranking of high school grade point averages have ended the ancient and actually time-proven idea of meritocracy. 
brilliant high school transcripts and test scores no longer warrant admissions to the so-called elite schools. One result was that the number of Jews has nosedived from 20% to 30% of Ivy League student bodies during the 1970s and 80s to 10 to 15% now. Jewish students are also currently stereotyped as white and privileged, and thus they're considered as fair game on campuses. At the same time, the number of foreign students, especially from the oil-rich Middle East, has soared on campuses. Most are subsidized by their homeland governments. They pay the full, non-discounted tuition rates to cash-hungry universities. Huge numbers of students have entered universities who would not have been admitted by the very standards that universities until recently claimed were vital to ensure their own competitiveness and prestige. Consequently, they are no longer the guarantors of top-flight undergraduates and professionals from their graduate programs. Faculty are faced with new lose-lose-lose choices of either diminishing their course requirements or inflating their grades, or facing charges by DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Commissars of systematic bias in their grading, or all three combined. The net result is that there are now thousands of students from abroad, especially from the Middle East, far fewer Jewish students, and student bodies who demand radical changes in faculty standards and coursework to accommodate their unease with past standards of expected student achievement. And presto, an epidemic of anti-Semitism naturally followed. In such a vacuum, advocacy studies, classes, those proliferated along with faculty to teach them. Gender, black, Latino, feminist, Asian, queer, trans, peace, environmental, and green study courses demand far less from students and arbitrarily select some as oppressed and others as oppressors. The former victims are then given a blank check to engage in racist and anti-Semitic behavior without consequences. Proving to be politically correct in these deductive gut courses rather than pressed to express oneself coherently, inductively, and analytically from a repertoire of fact-based knowledge explains why the public witnesses faculty and students who are simultaneously both arrogant and ignorant. At some universities, blacklists circulate warning. Marginalized students are told which professors they should avoid who still cling to supposedly outdated standards regarding exam taking and deadlines and absences. All these radical changes explain the current spectacle of angry students citing grievances and poorly educated graduates who have had little coursework in traditional history or literature or philosophy, logic, or the traditional sciences. Universities and students have plenty of money to continue the weaponization of the university, given their enormous tax-free endowment income. Nearly $2 trillion in government-subsidized student loans are issued without accountability or reasonable demands that they be repaid in a timely fashion. 
exceptions and exemptions are the Bible of terrified and careerist administrators. Faced with an epidemic of anti-Semitism, university administrators now claim they can do little to curb the hatred. But privately, they know they should. And the targets of similar hatred, be they black or gay or Latino or woman, they would then have the perpetrators against them expelled in a nanosecond. What is the ultimate result of once elite campuses giving 70 to 80% of their students A's, becoming hotbeds of dangerous anti-Semitism and watered down curricula that cannot turn out educated students? Well, the Ivy League and Kindred, those so-called elite campuses, may soon go the way of Disney and Bud Light. They think such a crash in their reputations is impossible given centuries of accustomed stature, but the erosion is already occurring and accelerating. At the present rate, a Stanford law degree or a medical degree like my daughter has, a Harvard political science major, or a Yale law degree like my son has, will soon scare off employers and the general public at large. These certificates will signify not proof of humility and knowledge and decency, but rather undeserved self-importance, vacuousness, and fanaticism, and all to be avoided rather than courted. You know, one of the words that's become utterly void of meaning in the last few years because of its overuse and misuse is privilege, white privilege, and male privilege, and able-bodied privilege, and gender privilege, and heterosexual privilege, even hot privilege. In these contexts, privilege is a stain, an original sin, meant to guilt the offending party into repentance. Check your privilege became a common refrain of the past decade. What all of this has done is confuse and undermine the idea of real privilege, which of course really exists in this country. The ultimate privilege in America is not being born white or straight or male. The ultimate privilege, as Melissa Kearney argues, is being born into a household with two parents. Melissa Kearney is an economist at the University of Maryland, and her new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind, argues that the declining marriage rates in America and the corresponding rise in children being raised in single-parent households are driving many of the country's biggest economic problems. In the 1950s, fewer than 5% of babies in this country were born to unmarried mothers. Today, nearly half of all babies in America are born to unmarried mothers. Most surprising and worrisome is how this trend is divided along class lines, with children whose mothers don't have a college degree being more than twice as likely compared to the children of college-educated mothers to live in a single-parent home. Many of the arguments that Kearney makes in her book are what you might call common sense, and yet the book has received tons of criticism. But as celebrated economist Tyler Cowen said of Melissa's book, it's remarkable that such a book is so needed, but it is. The word privileged, as Melissa Carney uses it, is not a dirty word. 
quite the opposite. It's aspirational. It's meant to inspire policies and programs and changes in our social norms to even the playing field so that we can do better for all of our children, so that every child in America has the best possible chance for flourishing. That is what every child in this country deserves. Why are people not getting married anymore? Over the past 40 years, there's been a dramatic decline in the share of children living with married parents. In the 1950s, less than 5% of babies in America were born out of wedlock. Today, half of all the babies in this country are born to unmarried mothers. How did we get from there to here? Well, it's a misconception that couples are becoming less wed to the institution of marriage, so they're just cohabiting. That's not the case. Roughly 30% of kids in the U.S. live outside a two-parent home. More kids in the U.S. than in any other country in the world are now living with just one parent. And it's not about an increase in divorce. Divorce in the U.S. is actually down from the mid-'80s. This decline in marriage, this rise in the share of kids living with just one parent, and this rise in non-marital childbearing has happened predominantly outside the college-educated class. That's why this topic is so instrumental to conversations and concerns about inequality and threats to social mobility. It's really among more economically vulnerable parents that there's been this rise in kids living outside of a two-parent or married parent setting. And that wasn't always the case. From the 1960s through the 1990s, women with college degrees were actually less likely to be married than women without college degrees. What happened in those intervening decades? Well, in the 60s and 70s, there was a socio-cultural revolution in the U.S., which included changing expectations about marriage, a greater acceptance of having a child outside of a marriage, and distribution in roughly equal proportion. In the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, marriage rates among college-educated adults stabilized. Economics is a big part of the story. College-educated adults did really well in those decades, and they continued to see increases in their earnings. But outside of the college-educated class, men saw their employment rates decline and their earnings decline. We saw a loss in a number of jobs that in previous generations provided family-sustaining, well-paying jobs for men without college degrees, manufacturing jobs, industrial production jobs, etc., those jobs were eliminated, and we saw a corresponding decrease in marriage and an increase in the share of kids living in single-mother homes among affected communities such that economists have drawn a casual connection. That's the sort of unromantic model that strips out love and compatibility and just looks at the economic incentives to marry or not. It turns out to be pretty predictive. The one big exception to the rule here is Asian American families, who across all education groups and all classes have really high rates of marriage and two-parent households. Why do you think that is? And what can you learn from their success? That was the finding that surprised Melissa Kearney most when writing her book. Among whites, among blacks, among Hispanics, 
there's this huge college gradient. But among Asian Americans, regardless of maternal education, there are really high rates of two-parent homes. So the least educated moms who identify in the census as Asian American are more likely to live in married parent situations than the most educated Hispanic and black moms. It's not explained by different economic situations. Non-college educated Asian men saw the same economic trends over the past 40 years as white men and black men and Hispanic men, but without the subsequent reduction in marriage. That makes you think that there's a strong role here for social convention. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Why is the decline in marriage so bad for children and bad for the economy? Well, because two-parent households have economic consequences that are good, and single-parent households have economic consequences that are not. Two parents combined have more resources than one. Two parents in a home bring in the earnings, or at least the earnings capacity, of any two adults. And so, in a very straightforward way, we see that kids growing up in a single mother home are five times more likely to live in poverty than kids growing up in married parent homes. Kids in single father homes are three times as likely to live in poverty. Some of that reflects the fact that people with lower levels of education or income are more likely to become single parents. But even if you compare across moms of the same education group, you see that kids who grow up in a household with two parents have household incomes that are about twice as high. That means that those parents are paying for things like a nicer house in a safe neighborhood with good school districts, but they also spend more time with their kids. We see that kids who grow up with married parents have more parental time invested in them reading to your kid, talking to your kid, driving your kids to activities. If there are two parents in the household, there's just more time capacity. None of this is to denigrate single moms or single dads. It's just a reflection of the reality that two adults in the household have more combined time than one alone. Another set of resources that we have a lot of evidence on is there's more emotional bandwidth and less stress in households that have two parents as compared to one. We see in the data that married parents are less likely to resort to spanking and harsher parenting. They're more likely to report having strong, nurturing bonds with their kids. We also see that kids from two-parent households are less likely to have behavioral issues. 
They're more likely to reach educational milestones. They're less likely to get in trouble with the law. All things that set them up to be in a better position to thrive in life. It's certainly not the case that all of these single-parent households would be better off with a second parent in the house. There's evidence that when the second parent might be a negative influence, the child is better off with just one parent. If the second parent would bring in stability and chaos, that's not good for the kid. Some people might hear all of these dire statistics and think, we were better off in the world before the 1960s, where men had a very clear socially prescribed role as the breadwinners, and women had a very clear socially prescribed role, which is they took care of the home, and maybe we should return back to that. How do you respond to that? Mayor Kearney said, I do not in any sense bemoan women's economic independence. Unequivocally, I think it's a good thing that women are more able to provide financially for themselves and their children and not have to be married. Having said that, to the extent that these trends are being driven by men's economic opportunity and position being eroded, that's a bad thing. And we should be able to hold both of those thoughts in our mind at the same time, that women having economic opportunities is a good thing and men losing earnings potential and employment is a bad thing. Another important thing to note is in survey evidence, you don't see widespread rejection of marriage as an institution. You don't see in the U.S. that there's been a widespread move away from the desire to get married. Rather, it feels like achieving a stable married home is a bit of a luxury. It's something that's harder for people without higher levels of education and income to actually achieve. So for that reason, we should not be okay with that advantageous institution being something that's increasingly out of reach for those who aren't in the highest education income classes in our society. What are some of the policies and programs that could, at the local and federal government level, be adopted to help strengthen families? Well, if you look at the Administration for Children and Families budget, only 1% of their budget goes to community programs that have an explicit goal of strengthening families. I'd put a lot more money and research emphasis on building up an evidence base in the kinds of community programs that work and then scale them. We also need to double down on all of the things that we talk about to improve the economic position of adults in this country without college degrees. If the adult can't bring in money and doesn't have stable employment, that brings so many struggles. Boistering the economic position of vulnerable adults and parents is really critical, and we just haven't done enough there. I also think we need to promote a social convention of two-parent homes for kids. We do have social science evidence suggesting that role models matter, that celebrity messaging matters, that local leader messaging matters. This is why I think it's important, and we're honest about the benefits of two-parent households and fatherhood engagement for kids. I think many people are rightly hesitant to promote two-parent households because in the past, single mothers and their children were so stigmatized that they were essentially outcasts from communities. We should never go back to that. But there's got to be a way for us to promote two-parent involvement in their kids' lives. 
One of the things that is surprising about our current moment is that some of the programs, including subsidies and tax credits that used to be thought of as the precinct of the political left, have now been embraced, surprising people on the right. Talk to us about the changing politics of this issue. It makes you think bipartisanship might be possible on this. People on the left have traditionally been more willing or eager to spend money to help low-income families. Now people on the right are very explicit about the need for pro-family policy agenda. We all want to build a healthier society for families, and we should be supporting vulnerable families regardless of parental marriage structure. In the past, cash welfare was only available to single moms, and if you had a man living in the house, you would lose your check. Obviously, that's a bad idea. Even though we don't explicitly disincentivize marriage now, our tax and transfer system does implicitly disincentivize marriage. For example, if you're married and you're both working, you're much less qualified or likely to qualify for the earned income tax credit because our tax code works where you pool the income across two people. So a woman who might be on the margin of making $30,000 gets the earned income tax credit. If she marries that guy making $50,000, her and her child lose the earned income tax credit and lose Medicaid. This gives her the incentive to cohabit instead of getting married. And so our tax and transfer system unintentionally does discourage marriage, at least between two people who work. We should be getting rid of all those legacy effects. The book and the findings have been received like a nuclear bomb, at least in certain contexts. Why? Why did this topic become so out of bounds? Well, the issue was first raised very prominently by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the 60s when he was an analyst at the Department of Labor, and he wrote a memo calling attention to the large share of unmarried moms in that black American community at the time. A big part of his memo was saying there's high unemployment rates among black men that's contributing to this. But in the 60s, it got shut down with accusations of him being a racist. And there was some really unfortunate language that would strike us now as unproductive as cultural shaming. So it got shut down as a racist topic for years. In the 80s and 90s, the welfare reform debate had explicit language in the final federal law calling attention to the rise in non-marital childbearing as a social problem. So it very much took this position that marriage was beneficial for kids. But during that debate, there were some really ugly racialized stereotypes of the welfare queen. So I do think the racial element has made it particularly challenging to talk about. So in this book, you tend to know that the things it talks about are true, and people who read it tend to agree about all of this, but they don't want to say it out loud. How many areas of research and inquiry and basic curiosity about the most important things in our lives and culture are third rail now? If it's taboo to write a book saying two parents in a house are better materially than one, what else is off limits? And what can we do to combat that? Well, the University of Chicago Press published Kearney's book. It wasn't an easy process. She got four reviews, and one of the reviewers basically told the press, you should not be publishing a book in 2023 that calls for a return to marriage. 
So even at the Chicago Press, which you might think is the most committed to just telling the hard truths, it wasn't a walk in the park to get the book past the reviewers, which worries us deeply for those of us who believe in scholarly writing, for teachers and researchers. It worries us, and it should worry you deeply, that there are right answers and there are wrong answers among academics. There are clear pressures of what topics are valued, what topics people should pursue, and what topics are going to get published in the best journals. I think that it is really antithetical to what we should be doing as scholars and academics. When friends outside the academy ask, is it really as bad as people say, let me answer by saying this, oh yes it is, it's worse than you thought, and it should worry us all deeply. Thanks for listening to this No Restraint podcast. Pass it around to your friends. Thank you, Victor Davis Hanson. Thank you to Barry Weiss. And most of all, may God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. Don't be afraid to talk about anything. See you next time. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.